I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. This is your host, Jason Roundsville. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dylan Ray, and we have the adventure bow hunter himself, Tom Miranda, with us. Tom, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Man, it's uh, we're so excited to have you on the show today. Um, it's, it's not every day we get to talk to folks who have literally been all over the world and back a couple of times with a bow in hand. So thank you for taking some time with this. Uh, Absolutely. What, what is your most recent adventure? I know COVID has thrown a lot of us for a loop. What is something that you were able to, to get done even amidst the COVID? I'll tell you, it has been tough. Um, you know, when I finished my North American 29, I started working on international animals. And of course, when the COVID thing hit, really really put a damper in that i mean really all my international hunts were canceled i have a bow hunting camp in africa i had three different trips planned to africa all got canceled i was going to pakistan for my first time this year uh to hunt sheep and uh, ibex and uh, that was canceled and then i also had an ibex hunt in mongolia that was canceled so i ended up in texas which was one of the few uh, places where you could actually go and hunt i mean you couldn't even go if you're from the U.S., you couldn't hardly even go to Canada to hunt. So I ended up in Texas. I got a, a little exotic place down there that uh, I have bow camps at, and I get guys that come in there. And uh, basically, it's a little bit of archery instruction, a little bit of just the camaraderie and chance to hunt uh, black buck and axis deer and things like that. Wow. Well, that sounds pretty exciting, especially if you can't fly somewhere to get them. At least the opportunity still presents itself. Yeah, you know, I, I enjoy all aspects of bow hunting. And, uh, you know, I realize Pope and Young Club is really uh, concentrating on North American free range, you know, uh, bow hunts. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for some of the other things that you can do. And, of course, Texas, uh, most of Texas is fenced. And most of Texas, especially in the hill country, is more of an exotic uh, type uh, situation. It's a type of hunt that... Um, actually is a little more difficult than one might think. And also um, it can just be very unique because you can do it different times a year. I mean, the axis deer come into hard horns and into soft horns, velvet horns, all different times of the year. So you could be on stand and have a hard horned axis come in and an axis had just dropped his horns and an axis in velvet all in the same stand. And of course, you know, the horned animals, uh, you know, like the black buck, uh, those animals are, are, you know, have their horns year round. So you can actually hunt there in the summer, uh, which gives you something else to do or, you know, or in the spring when most of the animals are, if not all of them don't have any antlers, you can still go there and hunt horns. So it's a unique, it's a unique thing. And it is a lot more like going overseas and hunting for some of the Ibex and sheep and different animals that I've been going after. 
Well, it's anytime you can stretch your season out and extend that a little bit, that's a good thing. I think so. You know, I, uh, yes, I'm actually on. in South Texas right now, Tom. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, After deer, whitetail? Yeah, whitetail, hogs, and javelinas. Very cool. Yeah, javelina is a fun hunt for sure. I've shot a lot of whitetails in my day. Um, you know, I enjoy whitetail hunting. I think whitetail is one of the harder animals to actually get with a bow. I mean, you know, you can sit on stand and wait for them to come. Uh, there's a lot of different aspects and approaches. Some guys will wait till it's windy. I, I got a good pal of mine, Joe Maxfield from Matthews. He'll you know, he always enjoyed stalking whitetails. And of course, he grew up in Wisconsin and Minnesota area. And they get a lot of windy days. And, you know, when he had a real good windy morning, he would get out and glass and glass until he spotted a deer. And then he'd watch that deer go into a woodlot and bed. And then he would get the wind right and he'd sneak in there. And he shot many, many, many whitetails that were bedded uh, by stalking them. And uh, it's, it's pretty crazy what you can do, but whitetail hunting um, can really be a challenge. I mean, you look at all the different hunts that I've been on overseas and, and in, in North America, whitetail is, is probably, especially to get a really nice one and to say that you're gonna shoot this deer that's on this trail camera photo, it's probably one of the most difficult hunts you can do. Yeah. Jason, didn't you, get a, didn't you get a pretty good uh, compliment not too long ago? Uh, you know, I, I try to get compliments as often as I can, Dylan. <laughs> we had we had somebody tell us that they reminded you of Tom Miranda. <laughs> that was Ben. That was Ben <laughs> from Australia. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Nobody ever complimented me like that. I know that. I I took that as a pretty good compliment for me. I've, I've never got a compliment that good. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm not sure I have either. But I I'm gonna take it. <laughs> you know, obviously oh. he he's never seen me shoot a bow. So that's probably why. Uh, maybe, but he's seen me shoot a bow. Maybe that's why. Yeah. <laughs> no, hey, I've seen yeah. him shoot a bow too. So, yeah. Now he told us a, a great story. I, I forget what country it was in, but he was somewhere and was hunting and was literally sitting on a world record buck or bull of some kind. And then you happened to be coming up the trail and, and bumped into him. So, it was a pretty neat yeah. story. That, that was pretty crazy. That was in Bulgaria. And that was uh, during, the, uh, during the fallow deer rut. There's a special place in Bulgaria where all these fallow deer come from the hills and the mountains. And they come into this one area around this lake to breed the, the, the female uh, fallow uh, does. And uh, uh, Ben was there uh, with his girlfriend, whose wife now, he was there with her and a couple of other buddies. And I um, I got in there, they were already there, and I didn't even know they were going to be there. When I got into camp, we went out that afternoon, and uh, he told me that he recognized me from that quiver on my backpack. You know, I use a, a, a cat quiver, sorry, cat quiver, and he re he said, nobody wears one of those except Miranda, and sure enough, it was <laughs> me. And he ended up, that evening, he ended up shooting uh, the world record uh, a fallow buck. Uh, so it was pretty cool, I and mean, it was a great, great, uh, you know, we tuned up and got to be pals, and uh, he had bought the Super Slam DVDs from me several years before that. And so he, um, in fact, uh, my, the, one of the hunts on the DVD was for the um, Rocky Mountain Binghorn Sheep. And he got so excited about that, he ended up booking himself a Canmore bow hunt and went up there and actually did the Canmore uh, Binghorn Sheep hunt, the same as it was on my video with the snow and everything. And, of course, being from Australia, you don't see much for snow. But I ended up down in Australia with Ben just this last year uh, we, we were hunting Bantang together. So it was pretty fun. Yeah. He was a great guest because it's um, you know, he runs a Pope and young like organization for trophies in Australia. And it was very fascinating to be able to hear some of the different trophies they have down there. Was, yeah. Was, he actually talked me into spending some money and joining up. And uh, I actually got a couple of, I think I got three animals in their record book now. So yeah, that was pretty fun and uh, something to do. And of course, of course, if you need him back here, it's, it's no problem. I can just go break into my Australian accent and you probably wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> you want to give us a little sample? <laughs> Cheerio. Yeah, no, All right. <laughs> Cheers, Outstanding. <mate>. All right. <laughs> Throw another shrimp on the bobby. <laughs> <laughs> well that's uh no it was it was great to hear from ben that was you know one like i said one of those things that you just you don't hear about 
bow hunting down under that often and he was a good guest for us and and had a good discussion but he did he was pretty excited about that meeting meeting you in camp there very cool and so what uh what is something i know you once again been all over the world but what is on your to-do list what's on your bucket list that you haven't crossed off yet well it's kind of funny you know when i finished the north american 29 ricardo longoria from safari club called me and he said would you be uh, interested in allowing somebody from SCI to come and measure your game room? And I'm like, well, and I was a life member of SCI, you know, same as Pope and Young. And um, I said, well, what for? And he goes, well, you know, we just, he goes, I know I've been watching you on TV a long time and you've been hunting in Africa and you've been hunting all over. And he goes, I'd just like to see what you've got, you know, uh, that we can, you know, that we can add to our record book. And, you know, none of my, I hadn't scored anything. In fact, kind of a funny story when I was on ESPN back in the early days, they frowned on us being in any organizations because they considered like Pope and Young trophy hunting, you know, or, or SCI trophy hunting. So uh, they really didn't want us to be considered quote unquote trophy hunters by belonging to some of these organizations. So in the early years of me on ESPN, it wasn't that I was totally forbidden to do it, but it was frowned upon. So but anyways, uh, I ended up letting a couple of guys come to my game room from uh, Tucson, Arizona, and they spent three days measuring animals. And a couple of weeks later, Ricardo calls me and says, hey, man, you're 36 species from the World Hunting Award ring and only four guys have it. You should go after it. And I go, well, what species do I need? Well, he sent me a list and talked to me a little bit about SCI, maybe helping me out a little bit to, you know, to if I promoted them some on some of the international game. Long story short, by 2016, which I finished my slam in 2011, 2016, I had the 36 species and I got the World Hunting Award ring. Wow. Uh, there's only one other award higher at SCI, and that's the Conservation and Hunting Award, which is a little over 170 species. So I'm um, busy working on that right now. I'm pretty close. I need six more. So Wow. Now, are you the only one to do it with the bow? No, there's there's five of us that, that when I, when I finished in 2016, there are five bow hunters who had, had the world hunting award, uh, with an archery, um, Gary Bogner's one who he's oh, a yeah. young member. He, um, and was president of SCI, uh, Archie Nesbitt's one, uh-huh. uh, uh, Ricardo Longoria's one. And then the owner of the, um, Oh, ranch in Texas. Oh gosh, I forget his name. He's going to kill me when he knows I forgot his name. Um, but anyways, there's a guy in Texas, an older guy in Texas who owns a um, big uh, exotic game ranch. And he's got, the, he was the one that had the other one. Um, shit. I can't remember his name. Sorry. You, you know, what's interesting to me is that ESPN was against trophies because at yeah, the end yeah. of every at the end of every season somebody's hoisting a trophy and the other team's not so that that one strikes me as a little bit interesting yeah i think the you know the the you know considering hunting for horns or antlers or that i think is what that turned them off uh, byron sadler was the other guy's name you know i'd come to me eventually so those were okay. the four guys that had it and then i was the fifth so i think there's a guy now that also has it but SCI also allows crossbow. I think he shot quite a few with a crossbow. So I don't know that I don't really, it's not that I don't consider him a, cause it's a lot of hunting, but. Um, oh, I can yeah. imagine. Yeah. It's a ridiculous it, amount of hunting. Yeah. It's, it's a little, yeah. And it's, especially to do it with a bow is just, that's a different level. You know, when I, when I talk to people and they're out there saying, Oh, I, I did this and that and this and that, and, and then they're doing it with the rifle. You have to respect it. But then when they say, Oh, I got the same, the same animals, but I used a bow. That's a whole different level of commitment and, and a whole nother, you know, they earned it in that case. Well, and I use a camera too, which makes it 10 times harder. So, I mean, a lot of guys are using cameras now and filming their hunts and doing solo filming and a lot of the other things that can be done, but uh, ask any of them and they'll tell you that it's way harder to, to film your hunt, way harder to have your hunt filmed than it is to just do it on your own. I mean, those, all of this, you know, a lot of people will frown on some of this stuff like, oh my gosh, this guy thinks he's great. He goes out collecting all these animals, but you know, the reality of it is a lot of people collect a lot of things and um, I, I prefer to spend my money in the outdoors, you know, spend my money hunting, uh, hunting and being outside and being around wildlife. And, you know, the adventure bow hunter moniker came to me because, you know, I like to go somewhere I've never been and hunt an animal I've never seen. And, 
you know, the super slam was a big part of that because I mean, there was a time when I never thought I'd ever get to go to Alaska and you, you end up being in Alaska quite a bit in Northern Canada and the Arctic and the deserts and everywhere else to, to go after the 29 North American. And I mean, it took me 13 years and 54 hunts to, to arrow all 29 on video. So, you know, that was a big accomplishment, but it was very difficult. And it was something that you can't let the guide bring a rifle. If the guide brings a rifle on a sheep hunt and he just, you know, you can't get, you know, you can't get only 200 yards away. They want you to shoot it. So they get their tip. They want you to shoot it. So the hunt's over. And I mean, you've got to be willing to go home with nothing when you're a bow hunter. I mean, that's the biggest, the biggest hurdle in your mind is that it doesn't matter how much it costs. It doesn't matter how much time's involved because, if you get it without a bow, it's not really the hunt that you're after. It's not what you really want. And I think that's the key, the, men, the, the mentality of just being a bow hunter, just knowing that you're going to do it the absolute hardest way possible. And sometimes the hunts come together. Two of my 29 I shot on the first day. You know, wow. one of the hardest sheep to get, maybe the hardest sheep is the stone sheep. I shot them on the first day of the hunt. I mean, you know, that was lucky. I mean, it took me 36 days and four trips to kill the most expensive sheep on the hunt, which is the desert. So you know, you, you, what, you know, what God gives you on one hand, he takes away on the other. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, for one, I don't know that I'd have the wherewithal if that guy had had a rifle and I got 200 yards from the sheep I wanted. <laughs> it's uh, I know a lot of our guys wouldn't even consider that. I, but a lot of those guys are, uh, have a little more staying power than I do. So, well, it's funny too, you know, I, um, because of the ESPN days, I have a lot of friends in, in sports and a lot of, you know, major league players and football players and ice hockey players and all that. And, you know, I get to chat with a lot of different people who are really, you know, were really well known in their day. And um, one, and a lot of them turned to bow hunting because of my shows on ESPN, because back in the day, I mean, Wayne Pearson did a little bit of archery stuff, but you know, he never really was a, a solid bow hunter himself. When my shows uh, on ESPN bow hunting was, turned a lot of people from rifle hunting into bow hunters. And, uh, I had a guy, I had a guy, uh, he actually ordered a quiver from me in my store and I was packing the box and I said, gosh, I know that name. I know who, I know that, I know that name ended up, his name was Andy Pettit. He was a famous pitcher for the Yankees, um, hall of fame guy. Anyways, oh, yeah. I got to talking with Andy Pettit about, you know, and he was said he's going to try archery. He'd been watching me on TV and he's going to do archery. And he ended up going on a hunt, uh, a sheep hunt. And I told him, I said, if you go, don't let your guide, I said, your guide's going to want to bring a rifle because of the Grizzlies. So I said, but don't let him use it. Don't let him shoot. And sure enough, you know, a month later, he gives me a call and he goes, man, he goes, they can only get 200 yards. And he goes, I ended up taking the guide's rifle and shooting, but he just shot, he just shot a desert sheep with his bow, uh, three, three or four weeks ago. So, wow. you know, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. That's great. Well, it's, you know, it's addictive when, when you get out there and you get to experience things and it's, it's just a different level because you see things and you hear things that you just don't get in other, in other hunting instances, you know, things where, okay, if at, at 90 yards with the rifle, it's, it's game over. Now it's time to start skinning. And with the bow, sometimes you're completely out of the game. And so you, you get the next two hours to figure out if there's any way you can get back in the game. Absolutely. Uh, it's, there's no question that it takes a little more mentality as far as learning the animals, learning the tracks. It takes a lot of patience. A lot of rifle hunters I know have zero patience. You know, the best bow hunters I know, the Randy Almers of the world. I mean, these guys will lay in the, they'll lay in the bushes all, you know, what you think is the prime time to hunt because they know that they want to wait till eventually this animal beds so they can find his antlers sticking up in the grass and then they'll make their move. And, you know, it's that a lot of times just being patient and just sitting still and not trying to aggressively go after the animal makes all the difference. And, you know, a lot of the bow hunters in North America are tree stand hunters because they're whitetail hunters. I mean, there's 15 million, you know, whitetail hunters in North America and, you know, there's 3000 ish bow hunters a lot of these bow hunters just hunt out of a tree stand, but when you get on the ground and you got to get the wind right and every movement is in the periphery of vision of the animals, uh, you've got to really put your wits together. And it takes quite a few, you know, barren ground caribou hunts to figure out that these animals aren't stupid, you know, before you go after your first elk and you start moving on the ground. And, uh, but once you become a ground hunter, 
it, there's nothing like it because it is the, the true eye to eye you against the game. And that's, what's nice about taking those skills that you can learn here and taking them overseas and be, giving you the opportunity to go after Ibex. If you can, if you can shoot a mountain goat or a sheep in North America, you can go and shoot an Ibex overseas, or, you know, you can go to Africa and stock game. Those trips can be done in the spring and summer in the Northern hemisphere because of the seasons being opposite. So, you know, it's, um, that's what I like about adventure bow hunting because, you know, there's, you can hunt 12 months a year somewhere and it's always exciting with, when you're, when you have a bow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime you get outside and get to enjoy it, that's, that's another bonus. So what, if, if you had to look back on, on years and years of doing this with the bow, what would you say is, is one of the trophies that you're the most proud of, or that kind of, is there one that stands out where you're like, you know, that was really something special? You know, there's lots, um, because really I never, you know, I never really, I, I became a bow hunter pretty late. I mean, I grew up trapping. I was a trapper. Uh, and I think trappers make the best bow hunters, by the way, because of their attention to detail. You know, when you're a trapper, think about being a bow hunter and you're in a tree stand, you got to get the, the deer to walk within 30 yards and make an easy shot and you're done. A trapper's got to get the animal to step on a little trap that's three, four inches, five inches in diameter. And so there's a lot more thought process going into where the, the animals are traveling, where they're pinching down, where can you make this work, keep watching your scent wind direction that may take the scent to the animal to smell it. A lot of different things in trapping that really correlate to, to bow hunting. And so, um, you know, when I got out of the trapping and into the bow hunting, originally I wanted to do a TV show on, on trapping and I ended up standing in line to get Jimmy Houston's autograph at a sports show. And when I got up there, I told him that I wanted to do a TV show on trapping and what did he th think about it? And he looked at me like, Oh man, I don't think trapping TV show is going to fly. Of course, he was on ESPN at the time. And, and I said, well, you know, um, I really, you know, I'm a good trapper. I'm well-known trapper. I really think I can make it work. And he goes, well, if you can make it work. But he goes, what else? Do you do anything else outdoors? And I go, well, yeah, I like to bow hunt. He goes, there you go. Focus nice. on your bow hunting. And that's what I did. I started focusing on my bow hunting. And two and a half years later, I was on ESPN myself. So, you know, I mean, uh, as far as exciting animals with the bow, they're all exciting. But, you know, my, my uh, Rocky Mountain bighorn hunt, I mean, the hunt that, that uh, Ben Salaris was talking about, um, you know, that one was a big one for me because that was one of the few hunts that I really wanted to give up on. That was one of the few hunts that I thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to get this done. I'm going to have to come back. And I was being guided by Chad Lenz, and uh, we were in the Canmore Bow Zone. And I mean, it was ridiculously windy. It was ridiculously cold. The snow was deep. The mountains were steep. Uh, by the time I ended up shooting out on the 14th day, I, all the pins in my sight housing were broken out, and I was using toothpicks for sight pins. And that's how bad the hunt got. I was falling down, sliding down the mountain. I got caught in a snow shoot and nearly went off a cliff. I mean, my uh, cameraman got frostbite on his feet. I mean, it was one of those hunts where you just wanted to give up. And we kept going and going and going and going until finally, right to the very end of the hunt, I ended up getting a shot and uh, getting it done, you know? And I mean, I knew at that point that I would be able to do the slam. And when I, my cameraman looked at me and gave me the thumbs up that he had it on video, I knew that I was going to be able to do it because, because of that. And I mean, I think whenever the times get tough, whether it's in Spain or Turkey or Mongolia, wherever you go, um, I think of that hunt. And I think if I can get through that, I can get through anything. And I mean, so that, that hunt to me and the other sheep, I mean, you know, the desert bighorn took me 36 days and four trips and I made some bad shots and missed animals that I should have, should have gotten. I had cameramen call me off the easy shots because they couldn't get the camera in focus or get, couldn't get on them quick enough. These animals see you and they run and, you know, they get out away from you and, and getting it on video is a whole nother level. So, and, you know, it ended up being my last animal to finish the 29. Uh, my elephant hunt, a lot of people would frown on doing an elephant hunt, but you've got to train to be able to draw 100 pounds. You've got to shoot heavy, heavy arrows. I mean, we ran from ele elephants for 10 days. We'd get close. The wind would switch. We would have cow elephants chasing us. I mean, it was crazy. Very, very exciting. I went through on three elephant hunts before I finally got a chance to shoot one with a bow. And, and the, the exhilarate, I'll never 
do it again. I mean, the elephant I shot was almost 60 years old, you know, I mean, these animals are, are a different type of animal. Uh, it's a little bit different than deer hunting, obviously, but, um, talk about, you know, the thrill and the excitement and just the adrenaline and all the aspects of that and the mileage. I mean, I think I lost 15, 18 pounds on that trip, uh, just because of just having to hike so much to keep up with these elephants that will just walk away from you. And I did a damage control hunt, which meant I couldn't keep anything. I couldn't keep the hide. I couldn't keep the tusks. I couldn't keep the meat. I couldn't keep anything of the elephant. Uh, so, you know, this elephant had been damaging these crops around this village and we had to actually find that elephant and these trackers, they know what these elephants footprints are. They're almost like a fingerprint and they, you know, we'd finally find the one that was doing the damage and we would track and track and track and track him and we wouldn't find him in days and days. So, I mean, you know, those types of hunts are always going to be something that's going to, you know, really build in your mind of, uh, something that was a real accomplishment because not only do you have to find the right one, you have to get into range safely. And of course, an elephant can drag you out of a tree. They can push a tree over that's 12 inches in diameter. I mean, they, they stomp on you. You're dead. I mean, we had a guy in camp where I was sleeping in this one, uh, at this one camp in the Ome concession. And I, in the middle of the night, we hear honk, 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 honk. It's people screaming. So we go, I get on my, um, slip on a pair of slacks and run outside like what's going on well there was this native guy in the back of this toyota pickup truck they had been driving for an hour and a half and he tried to scare the elephants out of his field and i'm telling you you see this got this guy from the the hip bones to the to his feet were flat this elephant had stomped him and stomped him and so from his hip bones to the bottom of his feet was just flat as a pancake. And there were his whole trunk of his body and everything was intact. And he was, I mean, he was basically dead, but I mean, he was still alive and they wow. needed to do another two hour drive to the hospital. Wow. Another hunt. I know I probably should be quiet, but I almost got killed on a lion hunt in Africa in Mozambique. And it wasn't by a lion. It was a by guys shooting at us. And um, we took a bullet through, we were in a convoy uh, I had a kidney stone and I was going to the hospital and we had left the main camp and we had, it was a three day drive to the hospital from where we were lion hunting and the Nyasa reserve. And, uh, we got stopped and the, the, the army was there and they said, ma'am, you know, we've got issues. Uh, of course they're speaking in a different language and I got interpreters, but anyway, we had to make a convoy and we were going to drive through this area because there were people shooting, shooting people and stealing their cars, shooting people and stealing the stuff out of their trucks and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, long story short, we go in this convoy and all of a sudden we're in the gauntlet and they open fire and took a bullet through the front of the truck over my foot into the transmission, one behind me in the seat. And they had put four soldiers on the back of the truck and the, one of the bullets killed one of the soldiers on the back of the truck. Um, four soldiers were killed and, and three civilians in that firefight. And I mean, I was literally missed by inches, but by two different bullets and uh, it was pretty crazy. So, you know, there's crazy things that can happen bow hunting. And those are some of the things that I remember that um, haven't, you know, I will, you know, after my operation, I went back and eventually, you know, back to Mozambique, even after all that and eventually got my lions. So at the end of the day, you know, you don't give up. If you're a bow hunter, you don't give up. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you can give up. If you, if you give up, you're not going to finish the, finish the hunt ever. And if you let the guide use a rifle, you just gave up. <laughs> that's the other, that's the other side of it. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you ever go back to Jimmy Houston and tell him that, that he was responsible for, for your show? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Jimmy, um, I did a TV show uh, when I was on ESPN in 1993 with Jimmy Houston and his son, Jamie, uh, my father and me and Ken Griffey Jr. And Ken Griffey Sr. Uh, oh, wow. So yeah, it was a celebrity pheasant hunt. And then, uh, we invited some other major league players and, uh, we did this big pheasant hunt and oh. uh, we did it, you know, as like, a. Uh, I lived in Chamberlain, South Dakota back then. I used to be a government trapper in Chamberlain, South Dakota before I got on TV. And so, uh, one thing led to another and we did like a little banquet and had all these guys sign autographs for people. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We made that show, but yeah, no, Jimmy's all well, too well aware of uh, helping me out. He's a good guy. That's great. It's nice. It's nice when, when people give you advice, it sticks and then, uh, and then they get to know about it later. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the things you've got 
coming up in the next year? I mean, this year, a lot of stuff got canceled. Did you have to rebook that for next year? Absolutely. Um, all my, all my Africa boat camp people that were going in 2020 are going in 21. And I already had pretty much a full camp in 21. So it's going to be packed. I've got to go to Africa at least three times this year. Um, my Pakistan hunt is still on uh, this year. Uh, my Mongolia hunt's still on. So, yeah, I mean, there's a few other hunts I've been toying with, but, you know, until this COVID thing breaks around, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to kind of lay back a little bit. Yeah. Now, what is, what is the current status for Africa as far as travel and, and the hunting there? I know South Africa, you know, last thing I heard was still shut down. Have they released or, or opened that up a little bit? No, they actually went the other way a couple of days ago. So they're even locked down more. So they have a, they've got a big problem over there. Um, and they're, they're unsure when, when they'll ever get any vaccines over there, you know? So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm hoping that, you know, it's the middle of summer over there right now. So if it's the middle of summer and it's locked down, it, you know, I've talked to a few people over there that say it's pretty grim as far as us having a season again this year. But I mean, Africa lost all of its season last year. I think that they're going to they'll do anything. Uh, my pH, a guy that I've used for 20 years, Zach Grobler, he comes over here and guides at my Texas camp um, because he can take the money back to, to South Africa. And then the, the, you know, the exchange rate 16 to one. So somebody tips him, well, it's a month's salary to the average person in Africa. So he comes over here and does some of that and keeps busy. And then um, he got stuck over here last year, for four months, because he couldn't go back to Africa. Uh, he's over here now. And, um, he's supposed to go back around, around the 20th or so of January. But I think, you know, because all the sports shows got canceled because we usually always do SCI and uh, grand slam club. In fact, I've been making uh, videos, you know, the grand slam club's going to do their awards on online. So I'm making the videos for that right now, but uh, the Dallas safari club, all those shows got canceled. So Zach usually mans my booth at those shows. And so he's going to, head back, but I don't know if he can even go back now. The last time he went back to Africa, he had to quarantine for 10 days. So um, I think they're letting you fly if you've got a certificate that says that you don't have it. But I don't know if you've got a quarantine when you get there or not. Yeah. And I know if you're over there hunting, you've got to take a test before you leave. So because you need to you need the paperwork that says that you were clean when you get back. So yeah. Yeah, it's definitely turned our whole world on its head. I mean, I, I feel terrible for, you know, you feel bad for the guys that lost trips, but then you start talking to some of these outfitters that, you know, they lost their entire spring season for, you know, up north bears. And you think, oh, that's that's bad. And then they lost their entire fall season. And um, it's, it's, it's going to take them years to recover from this. It's nuts. Um, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I'm, I think it's a bad, I think this, you know, I don't want to talk politics, but I think it's bad for the, I think it's a, you know, it's bad for the, this, this illness is bad for the older generation of people. I mean, you know, I'm in my sixties, early sixties. So, I mean, maybe I'm in that same generation, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you've got to stay healthy and you got to live your life and you got to do what you got to do. And it's just, you can't just lock everybody up and you just can't, you know, it's just, I think it's the, I think the cure is worse than the illness for most people. I, I yeah. I, and I, the last thing I thought saw was that it was a 99.8% survivability rating. So it's, yeah, that's probably enough politics for our show. <laughs> right, <laughs> right there. <laughs> we, we want to talk about hunting. <laughs> so, I got a, I got a happier question, I guess. <laughs> you bet. So, so, uh, Tom, since we told you Jason's greatest compliment in life, what's the greatest compliment as a hunter you've ever received? Um, it's without a doubt people coming up to me or texting me or emailing me or messaging me on Facebook or Instagram that they got into bow hunting because of my show. I mean, that to me is why I, why I did it. You know, so many young people want to have their own show. So many people come to me. I, I started doing this a long time ago, you know, I mean, I've done it over 30 years and, you know, I tell every one of these guys that want to have their own TV show 
it's like, you got to have a reason to have a show. You know, you've got to have a, it just can't be that you want to be on TV. It's got to be, you know, what are you trying to, you know, what are you trying to portray? What are you trying to get across? What is your goals? And then there's so much more to it than just because the, you know, because the glamour of it all wears off pretty quick because it's not an easy business to be in. And, and, you know, and a lot of people don't appreciate, you know, how hard it really is because they think that everything's free. They think all the hunts are free. They think all the gear is free. They think everything's free. And all the TV guys do is just go out and shoot something and make money. And that's how it is. And it was never that way for me, but I was grew up trapping. I made some of the very first how to trap videos, which is where I learned how to run camera, where I learned how to edit. Now I've edited a lot of my own TV shows for years and so the production side of it is, is important to me. Um, but, you know, I did it because I wanted to promote the outdoors because in trapping, I was a very well-known trapper for a long time, but in trapping, you know, we're the low hanging fruit for activists. And so I constantly was, you know, had people trying to, uh, you know, call my 800 number and call me a murderer or trying to shut me down or, you know, picketing my house or whatever. And even when I was on ESPN, because people knew, you know, there was a book that uh, PETA came out with back in the early nineties. And I was like number eight of the top 10 worst people for wildlife because of the trapping videos that I had done. And, and I mean, I had the highway patrol, Florida highway patrol guarding my house for a while because of bomb threats and things like that, because the ESPN back in the early days, you know, we were on the main ESPN feed. I mean, 120 million households, you know, I would I could possibly, you know, on one Saturday morning could have 800,000 people watch my show. You know, it's crazy what, what wow. kind of ratings we got back in those days. I mean, I would sell kind of a funny story, but I mean, uh, I couldn't sell one of my sponsorships my second year on the network. And these commercials were crazy expensive. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with it? I mean, I was I had to take it. It was part of my package. It was part of what I was paying for. I couldn't give it away. And I was making VHS videos on deer hunting back then too. And I thought, you know, I'm going to sell this new deer video, Buck in the System Volume 2. I'm going to make a commercial and I'm going to sell it on there. Well, the very first episode that I aired the commercial on, I sold like 850 DVD or VHS tapes in one commercial. And so it was like, it took us the whole next week just to box them all up and send them out. Wow. I mean, I had to order more to get them shipped in immediately. <laughs> and I mean, it was crazy, but that was the type of uh, thing that happened back in those days because of the numbers, you know, but I mean, I did it. I did my shows. It was a business and it still is a business, but uh, that's the most important thing to me is knowing that there's people out there that were hunters or that maybe weren't hunters that started to learn with bow hunting or they were rifle hunters who decided to change and be bow hunters because of the show, because they watched me do it. And, you know, you try to, one of the things I learned in sports center school at ESPN when I first got on there was that, you know, it's a stick and ball uh, network. So, you know, you want people to root for you and it's the same thing in a hunting show. You want people to root for you. And so you can't be the know-it-all guy. You can't be the stuck up guy. You've got to be the guy that's like the next door neighbor and, you know, it's important to come across like the guy next door, the guy you'd really want to go hunting with. And I've worked very hard in my career to, to be that person, to be somebody who isn't really stuck on themselves and can be, you know, I mean, I've been blessed all these years to have the opportunity to do what I do. And the reality is there's a thousand bow hunters way better than I am. And there's a thousand TV producers way better than I am. I can only do the best I can do, but I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm doing it to try to promote and help the sport. And, you know, people can go on my Facebook page and see the elephant hunt and they'll see some of the other hunts that are really you know, that a lot of people don't like, and I get a lot of hate mail over it and a lot of hate posts and all types of stuff, but it's conservation. You know, all animals need to be managed, every animal. And so, you know, everybody else is afraid to do it because of Cecil the lion or because of this or because of that. And I'm not afraid. And my hunts like that aired on ESPN, you know, and I mean, I was, my polar bear hunt aired on ESPN. Uh, and it was because I could talk to the people at the network and tell them that, you know, this is conservation. This is how the Inuits do it. This is why these polar bears need to be hunted. And so, you know, to me, that's, that's the most, you know, the, the best thing that can happen to me is for somebody to say, I got them into, into bow hunting. Wow. 
Wow, that's great. And it's it's wonderful. And you've always been a, a great ambassador for for hunting, for bow hunting, and and for Pope and Young. And I know we sure appreciate all of that. So yeah, kudos, kudos to that. It's you know, you bring up the elephant hunting, and it's that's such a polarizing subject. And I think most of it is just people don't understand. I was on a plane once and I you know, they, we were talking and, and they said, well, what do you do? And I told them a little bit about it. And they're like, oh, and, and you could tell they were put off a little bit and they, well, you would never shoot an elephant, would you? And I said, well, you know, I, I've never had an opportunity. I don't know if I would or wouldn't, but, and they said, well, that's terrible. And I said, well, why do you say that? And when, when we had a conversation, they came into it from the exact opposite side I did, but when they realize the actual implications of having too many elephants, you know, in a country over there that, that it literally eats out the entire ecosystem for decades. And it's not a good thing where they're not all happily running around in, you know, in this utopian environment. I think if people really do their research, they realize that, that there's more to it than, than that. And management is part of a healthy population. Well, we have it made here in North America. We have the best conservation model by far. And, you know, we don't have the same problems with poaching and other things that a lot of these other countries have. And uh, a lot of these, a lot of these countries, uh, you know, are very poor. And so when you get, when you get these um, groups that go in there that want to outlaw hunting and they bring money and gifts and food and everything, they can sway a lot of the, the, the governments to, to go their direction. And it's not in the best interest of the animals. I mean, yeah, sure. Whatever animal you arrow uh, or shoot or whatever um, in a hunting situation legally, it's not a good day for that animal. I mean, let's face it. You know, if you're that animal, you're dead. But the other animals that live in that area, it's a really good thing for because it is conservation. It is wise use of natural resources. I mean, these animals are going to die under the wheels of a truck or a car. They're poached or whatever happens to them. I mean, they're living things and living things have a, a life cycle. And a lot of these people don't don't understand that. Uh, these people that don't understand the, the you know, hunting and they don't want to understand it. And, and it's always going to be a problem. I mean, uh, for lack of a better analogy, I, I basically compare it to abortion. I mean, nobody's going to ever um, have the right answer. You know, it, there's going to be so many people that are dead, dead against it, no matter what. And there's because there's lives at stake and there's people that are going to see that there's a need for it. And it's hunting is the same way. You know, it's the same thing you've got. It's not the same thing, but it's the same. The analogy is there that there's just so many people that are just not going to accept it, no matter what, no matter how good it is for that situation. It's just not going to not going to let it happen. But North America, we've got it made, uh, you know, um, and and we're blessed. To, we're blessed to to have some you know unique animals and some great organizations. I mean, unfortunately, for the organization side of it, there's just too many organizations and it splits a lot of people up. I mean, you know, you take the, the, if you start breaking it all down between, okay, the, the, the archery guys that use longbows and recurves, and then the guys that use compound bows, and then the crossbow guys come in there. And then of course you've got the guys that like to use a handgun and then the guys that will use a rifle and some states can't use a rifle, so you got to use a slug gun. All these people get fragmented. And then, of course, there's the Grand Slam Club and the Wild Sheep Foundation and Pope and Young Club and Buckmasters and SCI. And how many organizations can you belong to? And, you know, where does this, you know, and none of these organizations or very few of them talk to each other. And so, you know, you look at the, you know, the rack in my bathroom has magazines stacked from here to Kansas. And, you know, there are all these different magazines from all these different places, you know, all these different organizations, and they all want money, you know, every year, not only for the, you know, there's a donation, there's a hunt donation, there's this and that. And it's, it's a stress on, uh, you know, it's a stress on everybody. I mean, the organization itself, who is in there for the right reasons, you know, and the people that belong to them, you know, I mean, it's a, in my opinion, it's a sacrilege that Pope and Young national membership is what it is. I mean, there should be, there should be way, way, way more people involved in the Pope and Young club. There's, there's way, way more bow hunters. Um, 
out there that I think are taking a free ride. And of course, I'm preaching to the choir here because none of those guys are going to be listening to this podcast. But the, the fact of the matter is, you know, if you're a bow hunter, you need to be involved in bow hunting organizations. And, it, and a lot of them are at the state level. I do a lot of state bow hunter chapter things for SCI and, uh, and for Pope and Young. And I mean, I was in Wisconsin doing a, a seminars and stuff for their bow hunter club. And they have more bow hunters in their club than the Pope and Young Club does. I mean, the state of Wisconsin, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, how the, how the state can have more. And, you know, and I ask a raise of hands of people that are in the Pope and Young Club. And, you know, there's like, there's 350, 400 people in the banquet. I mean, it's like a national banquet for Pope and Young and the state and, you know, 20 people raise their hands. That's it. I mean, I can't believe it. But, you know, I understand that, you know, they don't feel like the national organization covers what they, you know, their interests. And so they like to keep their money in the state organizations. Well, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. I mean, it's really a paradox to me why, you know, you can't get more people involved, but it's the way it is. Yeah. And we see that, you know, we talk to folks and, and, uh, I think for a lot of it, it's that, People just don't understand how Pope and Young benefits them, you know, in a year. They don't see some of the things we do. Maybe we're, you know, obviously we're celebrating the trophies because we're all about the animals, but maybe they don't see us because we're not celebrating. Hey, we just got this legislator. We just, you know, we're part of getting this legislation passed or we just provided information that, you know, helped increase bow hunting opportunities in Russia or, you know, some of those types of things. And I, I know for me, I'd been a bow hunter for, you know, 30 years before I was really exposed to Pope and Young. And I just didn't realize exactly the effect that they had had on, on what I'd taken for granted for a number of years. If it wasn't for Pope and Young, we, we probably wouldn't have bow seasons. And I think a lot of people don't understand what what it took to get them for them yeah that's true i mean it's it's true i mean in today's society it's you know the internet's there and you know these are things that i didn't have growing up and um, i mean i came from the trapping side of it so you know we had state trappers associations and then we had the national trappers association or the fur takers of america and they always had a big convention every year um, it was a simpler life, you know, a simpler, a simpler time back then where now you've got the, you know, you've got the internet and you've got, you know, there's so many distractions and so many things going so many different ways. It's, um, it's difficult. It's, uh, you know, what do you do? And it, a lot of these deer hunters, I mean, you know, I've, I've done, I've given seminars and I've talked to people and I said, what are you going to do if they outlaw hunting? And a lot of these guys say, well, we're going to hunt anyway, because it's our own land heck with them, you know, and it's like, they don't understand that, you know, you there, that's not the way it's going to be. Uh, yeah. you're not going to be able to hunt if it's illegal. Um, even though it's your own land, you know, you're not going to, it's eventually, you know, illegal is illegal. So you're going to, you know, you need to try to, to get involved in a, in a group and, and, and understand what's going on, not only in your backyard, but nationally, but it's, um, it's always going to be a paradox of why it's, you know, we don't have more and, um, you know, the whitetail thing too. I mean, you look at some of these, I'd like to see some more of these, uh, companies, you know, these trail camera companies and a lot of these whitetail companies get more and more involved with Pope and Young Club and, you know, but you know, it's like anything else. There's a million places they can put their money and that's, you know, if you don't, if, if you don't really shine to them, they don't, they don't go that direction. And I guess you can't blame them. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had a little bit of traction there lately. We just signed up uh, several new new corporate partners at the end of the year and and uh, continue to do that i once again we're one of the one of the best kept secrets out there so we're trying to let the word out and and uh, let people know what we're all about so and you know tom that's uh here's one thing that we ask every guest and so i know you've been all over the world hunted hunted animals most people have maybe not even seen in books and so what is when you're out and about whether it's whitetails and down the road or or clear across the world what's something that you take in your pack what's a piece of gear maybe a non-traditional item that that you just can't live without that you don't leave home without 
Oh man. Um, I do like payday candy bars. I will say that I've had okay. some payday candy bars in some crazy places, you know? Um, of course I did a, I did a hunt in Alaska for moose, uh, the moose I shot for my super slam. I didn't put my knives in my backpack. I kept them in a pouch, uh, in a, one of my bags at, at camp because I had a guide and he had a full thing of knives and my cameraman, we were, we were gone all day and sometimes we were bivouacking out. And so my cameraman said, you know, will you carry some batteries and tape for me? So in my backpack, besides, uh, lunch and food and stuff like that i had his batteries and stuff and so i left my knives well when that happens one day the uh the hunt's over the guy gets on a plane and takes off and flies away and since the the plane was uh a little bit empty they threw a few extra bags in the plane and ended up taking taking my knives with them out and so i end up shooting my bull moose in alaska and i don't have any knives to skin them with we're in the middle oh. of nowhere and i ended up skinning um, me and the cameraman ended up skinning a, an Alaskan bull moose, uh, quartering him out, everything with muzzy broadheads, caping him, the whole thing. Took three days. Muzzy <laughs> oh broadheads. My. Oh well, my That's uh, something I always have in my pack now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. You know, I, get, I had taken it for granted that, you know, like knives and binoculars were just things that you just always had. But if I'd have ever had to, you know, work a moose an alaska moose with a broadhead i think that maybe knife would go to the top of the list but uh you know we'll we'll accept payday candy bars as well how do they do in the cold when it's frozen can you still eat them oh uh, well you, they just melt in your mouth you're like an m&m at that point you know okay I mean? but yeah no it's uh that's the point they don't really melt easy so you know you can a lot of the hunts i do especially the last 10 years have been in real warm climates, warm areas. So you're constantly worrying about chocolate melting or, you know, stuff melting, not so much being too cold. So uh, I've done three muskox hunts and a polar bear and my fair share of snow and mountain huts. So I try to, I try to stick with the warmer stuff. I live in Florida, so yeah, you know, my blood's thinned out a little bit. There you go. There, there's something to that. So Absolutely. You, well, hey, Tom, thank you very much for taking some time to be with us today. It was great to talk to you and uh, hear about some of your some of your travels and, and some of your experiences. And, and please continue to be a wonderful ambassador for the outdoors and for bow hunting. And thank you very much for all you do for Pope and Young. We sure appreciate it. Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be uh, a member of Pope and Young. And uh, thanks for inviting me on anytime. If you're uh, a guest i can bs my way through an hour <laughs> we sure appreciate it <laughs> take care